Genesis 40 is what we're going to focus on in the saga of David, uh, of Joseph. Let's make it Joseph. I'm not flustered. You know, we had a great Easter from stem to stem to stern. And I, I had never uh, heard this by people who supposedly know what they're talking about. But I just was kind of web surfing this week in uh, Christian sites, of course. But uh, I saw something that said, statistically, the Sunday after Easter is the least attended uh, Sunday, I guess, in American Christianity. I, I mean, that kind of makes sense. I mean, some people, you know, two weeks in a row is beyond what they want to do or can do or whatever. But uh, I, di- I didn't, I'd never seen that stat before. So I thought, but we're going to break that, but it doesn't matter. Okay, Genesis 40, but I, I specifically had, I thought Homer was going to say, hey, I usually get Romans 8, uh, 38 and 39, but we gave him this passage, which I love, because First Peter's written to Christians that are suffering, but they're not doubting, pouting, and dropping outing. So he, he knows about their situation because he says they're, they're aliens. They're scattered throughout uh, what we call Turkey today in verses 1 and 2. And the first thing he says is, don't cry in your milk. No, he says, hey, look up and put this thing in perspective. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to our merit and our good works and our best intentions, and according to his mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Hope is faith directed forward to what we've been promised in the future, especially after death, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's Easter right there. And we're going to receive, every believer in this room will receive an inheritance that's waiting for you in heaven. David Bearden has one that's imperishable, undefiled, won't fade away, reserved in heaven with David's name on it. You can put stuff in a safe deposit box, and I suppose if a nuclear bomb went off or a strong enough tornado destroyed the, the bank or whatever, all your stuff would be gone. This is not going to go away. It's out of this world. And then it says, who? So he's not talking about our inheritance, but us as individual believers are protected by the power of God. That sounds like salvation, not probation to me. Uh, through faith and the salvation, which will be revealed in its fullest in the last time. And in this fact that you belong to God by his working, you've got an eternal destiny of blessing in and with him by his grace. In this, which never changes, that truth, that fact, that hope, you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, you know, 30, 40, 50 years is a little while compared to eternity. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So your proof, your your faith can be lived out and can have an impact to the glory of God. Um, you don't see him, you love him, um, and you look forward to the outcome of your faith. Now look at chapter 2, verse 20. And... Um, you know, I, I could kiddingly say about halfway through the message in, in, about Joseph today that Joseph must have mem- memorized First Peter because he sure is living it out. But how do I know that Joseph in Genesis had not memorized First Peter? Hadn't been written yet, but the truth was there. Those, this is just New Testament clarification. Look at this. Joel Olstein will not tell you this. A lot of the motivational speakers that draw big crowds every, they got a rock band live and you're looking at him on screen. I won't necessarily tell you this. This finds favor, spiritually speaking. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person, we're reading about Joseph, but it could be Lori McCann or or Julie Miller, this finds favor with God. If for the sake of conscience toward God, your responsibility, your faith, your fidelity to him, the God who saved you, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. They don't doubt, pout, and drop out. For what credit is there if you sin, if you, you go 80 and a 60 and you get a speeding ticket, that's not persecution. You, you deserve that. You shouldn't have done that. You're being correctly punished for that. What credit is there if when you sin, you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience. You, you actually pay the fine. There's, there's no merit in that. But if when you do what is right, which is what Joseph's story is about, and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it, you don't doubt, pout, drop out, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose. Of course, Christ never did anything like that, right? That's the whole life of Christ. Since Christ also suffered for you unfairly, unjustly, leaving you an example. And he committed no sin. And every problem I've ever been in that wasn't caused by me has probably been made worse by something I said or did in reaction to it. Because I'm just that messed up. While he was being reviled, he did not revile. While suffering, he had no threats. But the key was he kept entrusting himself to God the Father. In God the Father's purpose, to him who judges righteously. And guess what? All that suffering is ultimately redemptive because that's why Steve 
Skinner's going to go to heaven because Christ died for sin. And he himself, Christ, in the epicenter of the ultimate unfair suffering, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. So now flip back to Genesis 40, and let's resume the Joseph saga. Your kids need to know the story. You need to think about this story. Uh, ultimately, should you lead you back to the Gospels, ultimately it will help you read books like First Peter better. But uh, last week we looked at the resurrection in a big way. And I would say, Ron uh, Norton, that the, the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate big miracle. But when I ask people, list some miracles in the Bible. They're going to say, well, creation, that's a big one, right? Uh, opening up the Dead Sea, that's a pretty big one, right? People forget God opened up the Jordan River, you know, later so he could get uh, into the promised land. Uh, you see some of these, uh, there's a theological term for these. They're called big M's. It's not really a theological term. I just made it up. But these big miracles, right? Now, here's the crazy thing, Betty. You don't see any big M's in the life of Joseph. You see a lot of big P's, big provision, big providence. The providence of God, surely, slowly, subtly, silently, over a long period of time, which produces big results. And not just in the what, the events that happen, but in the character of the people that are impacted by this, especially Joseph. One of the big miracles in this Joseph story is that he didn't crack up. He didn't give up. He didn't doubt, pout, and drop out, because most of us probably would have been tempted to sorely. And so I think you see in this story, not just each one of these chapters as we work through them, but the overall story is that the life of Joseph shows us the redeeming power of perseverance. Perseverance is a holy hanging in there. The Greek term is hupomene. Uh, it's a holy hanging in there when you feel like you're at the end of your rope. You tie a knot in faith and you hold on. But I have doubts. Great, we all have doubts. Doubt them. Doubt your doubts. If you can doubt, you can doubt your doubts, right? And look at the cross and think about neat examples like Joseph. The redeeming power of perseverance, just refusing to doubt, pound, and drop out, and forgiveness. This guy was not plagued by hating his his brothers. Uh, he couldn't trust them, trust but verify, but he didn't hate them either. Um, in believers, Sidney Powers, Wendy Powers, Olga Pollock, Debbie McCoy, who live out their faith under the sovereignty, the providence of God. So that's the story. Last Tom, we were in Genesis two weeks ago. We looked in chapter 39. We saw that God's blessing to believers that keep on trusting and obeying him will come in surprising ways and surprising places. And Joseph ends up in this prison. And yet God's still working with him and through him. That's what we saw two weeks ago. And today we come to chapter 40. And we're going to see that divine revelation brings with it a certain amount of responsibility. In the Old Testament it says, teach your kids this at home. Uh, write it on the doorposts, connect it to your body, you know. Um, and a secondary lesson is people may forget us, but God doesn't forget us, God can't forget us, and God won't forget us. He's not going to forget you, Lori, even in your deepest valley, even in your deepest despair. And I think those are some really important lessons we can see today as we look at Genesis 40. And we have the PowerPoint working. Is that awesome? That's great. Uh, let's pray for our teachability, our troops peace officers, firefighters, as we look at this really important truth. Uh, Bo West, lead us in prayer in that direction, please. Amen. Well, I tell you what, Bo is an outstanding individual, and, and he has incredible taste in women, I can tell you that. And that is one beautiful family. It's a, it's a blessing to see them and to know them. Okay, James, you're going to have to listen fast to the abstract thought warmer-upper. This is a, it's not a photograph, it's a artist representation of James Mitchell and Jack Mitchell. And they were having a discussion recently. <clears throat> uh, your mother and I need more time to save for your college education. Jack's just two years away. Now, we all know he's going to get a big-time four-year full-ride scholarship to OSU. <laughs> so that's plan A. But So anyway, your mother and I uh, need more time to save for your college education. We'd like you to go back to kindergarten and start over. So we have a little bit more time. Genesis chapter 40, divine revelation brings responsibility because there's bitter and sweet. We kind of went through the highlights of uh, Ezekiel recently on Wednesday night for several months. Uh, 
passages few evangelical pastors ever tread. <laughs> and there's a lot of doom and gloom in that book, but God's justice isn't pretty, but God's justice is always preceded and followed by God's grace. And that's, you got to put it in context, right? And then also, we're going to see Joseph forgotten in prison at the end of this chapter. It's a very, very bummer ending of this chapter. But Sidney and Wendy know you, the story doesn't stop at the end of chapter 40, does it? It goes through 50. Okay, so it's way too early. You know, the, we're still in the middle of the game. Just because OSU is behind by a couple of touchdowns in the third quarter, does that mean they always lose? Well, most of the time, but uh, not always. <laughs> Not always. I mean, you, you can't decide who wins in the third quarter, right? Now, the chapter breaks down like this. We're going to see Joseph meets new friends in prison. Number two, verses one through four. We're going to see Joseph helps his new friends. It's always good to help your friends and play good with the other kids. And then we're going to see Joseph's interpretation is true, and yet he is forgotten, but he's not forgotten by God. That's what the dot, dot, dot there means, okay? So let's look at uh, verses 1 through 4. Joseph makes and meets new friends in prison. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer, we're going to call him the butler. The butler and the baker here are the chief butler and baker. The baker cooked the food, among other things, for the pharaoh. And the butler, head butler, made sure uh, that the food, after it was cooked, was delivered hot and delicious and wasn't poisoned. He was the taste tester of the food, and both these guys would have to be tight with the pharaoh and, humanly speaking, incapable of being bribed to, to rob from the pharaoh, to poison the pharaoh, or to spread um, lies or slander or even inside information about the pharaoh. So these would have been very trusted people. There came about after these things, the cupbearer, I'm going to call him the chief butler, and the chief baker for the king of Egypt, that's Moses using generic terms, believe me, he knows the Pharaoh is the correct term because uh, he uses it in the next verse, but he's just trying to orient the readers who may not know that, uh, offended their Lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. See, he knew that term. You, you actually have liberal scholars root verses like that out of context and say Moses wouldn't have written that because he knew it was called, the guy was called Pharaoh. Read the next verse, man. Come on. Where is it? Most Bible answer questions are answered where? The next verse. Almost, you know, 80% of the time. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials. Now, what did they do wrong? We don't know. You know why we don't know? We're not told. I think the Bible is written in part to urge you to ask those kind of questions, but you can't preach them as gospel, whatever your solution is, whatever your suggestion is. Uh, I think it's, it's designed for us to be engaged with it. I don't think you have to make the Bible interesting. I think you need to read it in context, and it's inherently interesting, okay? But some people don't think you can do that. you got to kind of move it up to second grade level so everybody can kind of think you're you're pretty cool. Uh Pharaoh was was furious with his two officials. They did something he didn't like or he heard they did something they didn't like he didn't like and maybe they didn't even do it because Joseph's in prison for no good reason. So the chief uh, butler and chief baker were in big trouble. They put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, the same kind of executive prison Joseph just happened to be put in several years before, the same place where Joseph was. And the captain of the bodyguard, which was a fixed term, like attorney general. You're talking about the attorney general now. You're talking about William Barr. But you can talk about Eric Holder as attorney attorney general Eric Holder. Or it would typically say former attorney general. But that term, President Carter. President Carter had his birthday recently. He's like 127. You know, now He's over 100. But you call him president. But, he, but is he the active, acting president? No, he's not. And that's a blessing. I'm not, I don't, don't say it. Go back to verse 1. They came about after these things. If you're using the Evelyn Wood speed reading dynamics, Robbie, you're robbing yourself. You gotta, that's Moses saying, remember what's happened up to now in this story. And you might say, uh, in the immediate context, it's everything that's happened to Joseph so far, starting back in chapter 37. But really in a broader context, it goes back to Genesis 3, where as soon as the fall happens, God says, through the seed of the woman, there's going to be a male who's going to end up taking care of the sin problem and uh, end Satan's plans, right? And it becomes more specific, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sons of Jacob that are involved in this. Joseph's one of them. We're in the process of God getting Jesus here the first time. This is why this is so important. And ultimately, that's important because he's the Lamb of God 
who will take away the sin of the world. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. By his wounds were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death in the Bible is an extinction of consciousness, a separation of your soul from your body, right? Uh, wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God's eternal life because Jesus Christ died and paid for it. Um, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord, that should be all caps, that's Yahweh, reference to God the Father, has laid on him, God the Son, the Savior, the Lamb of God, the iniquity of us all. So the reason that Joseph's story is ultimately important in Genesis is because it's one of the generational links that leads us to the first Christmas. So don't forget that. However, maybe more immediately when... Moses says, now, after these things, you really want to go back to the beginning of the life of Joseph, which is just a couple of chapters. What happened in chapter 37? From favored son with the multicolored uh, letter jacket to foreign slave. That's what happens in the first chapter. Then we see Joseph's faithfulness contrasted with Judah's faithlessness in chapter 38. Chapter 39, from being sold on a slave market, in a slave market in Egypt and not going to the salt mine and working himself to death, he ends up being the supervisor of Potiphar's, an Egyptian official's household. However, Potiphar's wife accuses him falsely of attempted sexual assault. So he ends up in, in the prison. But by the end of the chapter, chapter 39, he's the supervisor of the jailhouse. So he goes from being supervisor of Potiphar's house to being supervisor of the jailhouse. And now today we're going to see him going from fellow inmate and friend with a butler and a baker to a forgotten memory, but not forgotten in God's sight, because that's the big idea of this whole story. The Lord was continually with Joseph, not just with a lot of big M's, which you don't see, big miracles, but big providence, right? So that's verse 1 through 4, right? And notice it says, uh, these guys had offended their Lord, the king of Egypt. In other words, the Pharaoh was furious with them. The chief butler, the chief baker, see, they got the full title there. These were big shots. They, these guys were over a lot of other people, tight with the Pharaoh. So he put them in confinement in the same place where Joseph was. Man, Joseph was lucky for that to happen, wasn't he? Wasn't that so lucky for Joseph just to get to meet these VIPs, one of whom will be instrumental years later, and him getting out of prison. Boy, he was sure lucky that day, wasn't he? No such thing as luck. It says uh, at the end of verse 4, they put them in confinement for some time. So how, what does that mean? How long were they in confinement? We don't know, but I don't think it was a couple of days. I think we'd say more than a little bit. Now, Joseph was 17 back at the beginning of the story, years before this. And... uh so he's probably 21, 22, 23, 26, 28, something like that. Uh, he's receiving no voices, no visions. He's just faithful little old Joseph, daring to promote excellence and integrity, no matter where he ends up. And he's in a prison falsely accused of sexual assault. And humanly speaking, it doesn't look like God's doing anything. If you want to be honest, you don't see any big miracles. He's not, you know, when one time in Philippi, when Paul and Silas were accused falsely and arrested, what happened that night? Earthquakes, angels, they get out, right? Nothing like that happens here. So God's not doing anything, right? That's what it looks like to the naked eye, but use the eye of faith, right? Uh, if you read ahead, and most of you have heard this story many times, you know all this is happening for a reason so that several years after this, really big things happen, but not through... Uh, opening of the Red Sea kind of stuff, but people connecting some dots and doing some good things. So the principle is, and boy, I hope you remember this, uh, we're never going to have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, even though, boy, it's tempting you to do that sometime. And I'm tempted to do it all the time. Uh, but Joseph apparently works through that. He doesn't succumb to that kind of temptation. So uh, we got to kind of give God the benefit of the doubt because he didn't have First Peter to read, but we're told throughout this text, as recently as chapter 39, the Lord was continually with Joseph. That's all caps because that's the God of salvation. The Lord, the God of my salvation, is my shepherd. The Canaanites can't say that. Yeah, he's God's not their Yahweh. God's not their Savior. But 
Believers can say that then and now. Okay, and that's very, very important. Now, I found a really nice quote from Dr. Swindoll on this issue of how Joseph is processing this and just staying faithful. And that's a, that is a big M. China, that's a big M, him being faithful and not doubting, pouting, dropping out, and feeling sorry for himself. It's obvious he's not obsessed with himself because when the new guys come in and they look like they're having a bad day, he's concerned about their situation. He could be saying, you think you got problems? Sit down, buddy. Let me Sit down, Mr. Baker. Let me tell you about my problems. I've been here a lot longer than you've been. But look what happens here. This is Chuck Swindoll. We have two choices. When Joseph Joseph kind of circumstances happen to you in middle school or in your uh, assisted living center or any place in between, we can become disillusioned and embittered, or we can use that difficulty as a platform for putting our hope and trust in the living God. Disillusionment is a dangerous, slippery slope. First, we first we become disillusioned about our fellow man, meaning men and women. Then we move on to cynicism. Before long, we trust no one, not even God. We've been burned. We are hurting. We've been taken advantage of. We've been mistreated. Swindoll says, I've never met an individual who was truly disillusioned with others and who has not also become disillusioned with God. The two go together. Cynicism is spawned in such a context. The cause of disillusionment and the cure for it can be expressed in almost the same simple words. This is worth the price of admission today. The cause of disillusionment, doubting, pouting, dropping, outing, is putting one's complete hope and trust in people. You cannot do that. People are ingrates. They, they will let you down. They will forget all kinds of stuff. Putting people on a pedestal, including pastors, uh, not me or James, but somebody you'll never meet, you know, that has a big ministry. Uh, focusing on them, finding our security in them, being so horizontally locked in, page two, that that person takes the place of God. It could be your spouse. It could be your kids. Your complete hope can rest in one person. It can be your child. It can be your parent. It can be a business partner, a friend, a pastor, a coach, a mate. And when the feet of clay crumble of that individual you're essentially worshiping, as surely they will. If nothing else, they're going to get sick and maybe die on you. Total disillusionment sets in. What's the cure? Putting our complete hope and trust in the living God. Easy to say, harder to do, that's it, okay? A couple of paragraphs later, he quotes uh, from Phil Yancey's book, Where is God When It Hurts? The testimony of a man by the name of Christian Regeer. Um, Christian Regeer will tell the horror, story, horror stories if you ask, but he will never stop there. He goes on to share his faith. How at Dachau, what was Dachau? A German concentration death camp in World War II. How at Dachau, he was visited by a God who loves. Nietzsche, and he's not a good source of theology, said a man can undergo torture if he knows the why of his life, Regeer told me. But here at Dachau, I learned something far greater. I learned to know the who of my life. He was enough to sustain me then, and he is enough to sustain me now. And Joseph without the benefit of reading the New Testament crystallization of that truth in places like First Peter, that's exactly what he's doing, and that's why he, big M, hangs in there, ties a knot, holds on, and keeps on trusting and obeying the Lord, even though there doesn't seem for him to be very much reason, earthly speaking, to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. So he's got new friends. He's still in prison. Now let's look at him helping his new friends with their revelatory Dreams. God's revealing a message to them through their dreams. Does that happen in all your dreams? No. Can that happen at times if God wants you to? There's only two people in Scripture that interpret dreams. And they're a lot more important than me. And in my opinion, they're even more important than Billy Graham. That would be Joseph and Daniel. This is kind of a very unique gifting. But um, I'll say more about that in a minute. But let's look at uh, dreams and dread. Joseph helps his new friends. Look at verses 5 through 8. Then the chief butler and the chief baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night. Each man with his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Different dreams, different interpretations, different meanings. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, he does bed check at night, and he makes sure they have nothing's happened to him in the morning. He's got his clipboard. You know, he's in charge of the prison, right? Um, he observed them that they were dejected. 
Now, people who are really depressed don't notice anybody else's problems. They're the only ones in the world with problems. You can actually get that depressed. But Joseph's not there. He's not depressed. He's just in a holding pattern. Sometimes God puts you in a holding pattern. And God's will is not just a what, it's a when and a how. And sometimes you're in a holding pattern you're saying, Lord, when do I push the trigger? When do I push this button? I will show you, my son. <laughs> uh, he asked Pharaoh's officials, the chief butler, chief, chief baker, who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad? See, he's not self-absorbed. He's got problems. He could be saying, you got problems. My problems are worse than yours. He's actually interesting engaging with them, and maybe he can pray for them, if nothing else. And that's a big thing. Then they said to him, we have had a dream, quoting Martin Luther King Jr. there. So, no. And there is no one to interpret it. Now, in the Egyptian culture, they believed all dreams were revelatory from all kinds of pagan gods, which is one reason there's a lot of warnings about not listening to dreams in Scripture. They're talking about those kind of uh, pagan, possibly satanic or just psychologically based dreams. Uh, so, you know, we're upset because we can tell this is significant stuff. And according to our theology, we need somebody to tell us what it means. And Joseph says to them, don't worry about your Egyptian gods. Do not interpretations. Doesn't everything belong to God, capital G, one God, no other God but me? Tell it to me, please, okay? Now, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. How does the story start? What happens in chapter 37? What does Joseph tell his brothers about two things he had? Two dreams, remember that? He's saying, you know what? I had his dreams. I interpreted them from my brothers. And look what happened to me. I don't want to hear about dreams. Last time I interpreted dreams, I got in big trouble. I ended up in Egyptian slavery. He doesn't think like that. He says, you know, God's given me this facility. Perhaps he'll bless me to be able to do it this time for you. Just tell me your dream, you know. So he's not bitter. He's not self-obsessed. And let's look at verses 9 through 15. Joseph uh, is going to interpret the butler's dream. So the chief butler told his dream to Joseph. And he said, in my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches, and it was budding. Its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now, Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, just like the good old days. So I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put them into Pharaoh's hand. Now, if you hadn't read this before, or heard better preacher than me tell you what this means before, I would say, ouch, what in the world does that mean? You know? Well, a couple of things. Uh, Hebrews 1 says, leading up to the ultimate revelation of who God is, uh, what, or better, who is the ultimate revelation of who God is? Would we say the life of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Okay, Hebrews says, before that happened, you know, just that, you know, the word became flesh, God revealed himself to his people in many different ways, including occasionally revelatory dreams, right? But now we've got the climax uh, if you want to know what God's like, look to Jesus. And if you want to know what your situation is, put it against the background of the cross and the resurrection. You can shrink it down and kind of deal with it much better. So you got that going. Uh, and here's what I would tell you about dreams. I do not believe God is giving us today direct divine revelation in all of our dreams. I'm not going to say he can't possibly do that. He can do whatever he wants to. But we've got a complete can of scripture, and I would say for sure, in whatever ways you think God is subjecting, subjectively telling you to do something, you better, before you try to figure out what God's wanting you to do with that, you better find out what he's already said in Scripture, okay? Any and all subjective leadings, and I get subjective leadings, and sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, but they don't have the authority of Scripture because they're subjective. Scripture is objective. So always put whatever you think, Catch, I've had all kinds of people. I've been a pastor for 30 and a half years here and six and a half years in Shreveport. That's 37 years. I've had all kinds of people say, uh, Pastor, the Lord put a catch in my spirit that you shouldn't do that or you should do that or this or the other. They have no idea I'm already doing that under the scenes, but God didn't tell them that. Or they're telling me about the elders don't like the kids here, even though I know they do. Uh, once heard a nasty thing. Somebody gave me a catch in their spirit about you two. Boy, that was a bad one there. You know, after I stopped laughing, and that was a hard one to deal with there, but uh, I once had a lady go, go into great detail about how messed up my sons were, and, and we found out later her sons were on drugs at the time, and she had no idea. So, you know, God told her a lot of interesting stuff that wasn't true, 
But he never revealed anything about her sons on drugs. You'd think he'd start there, but, you know, they don't do that. So I'm just saying be careful when you get subjective leanings because, you know, uh, almost every year I get an urge to throw something through my television set. I get a subjective urge to do that. And it's usually in the fourth quarter of the OSU-OU football game. But I have never done that. My wife will tell you that. Uh, but I would just say, yeah, a God can reveal himself however he wants to. But I would say he ultimately has already revealed himself in Christ. He's uh, supplemented that and clarified what all that means to Scripture, New Testament Scripture. And that's where we ought to be looking to, okay? If you're all interested in your dreams and can't sit through a 20-minute Bible study, uh, you really ought to think about your priorities, in my opinion. If you can't even spend 20 minutes a day reading Scripture, but you're getting dreams to so you can write nasty letters to Billy Graham, and listen, he's not going to read them now, okay? He doesn't read that stuff anymore. Uh, he's in a much better place. So just watch out for that, because people just love being able to interpret dreams, even when they have no idea that uh, they're heretics and trying to do that. Uh, also, I would say, this is something I learned at a pastor's conference many years ago in Jackson, Mississippi, when I was in Shreveport and went over there. Uh, right before our car broke down, <laughs> I spent several days in Jackson, uh, this pastor of the Bible church we were at this conference uh, told us about this, uh, and this is related to Joseph's miracle of not doubting, pouting, dropping, outing. But I thought this was a really good insight, and he had all kinds of scriptural passages, but just the short version is, when people uh, have unfulfilled expectations, they're going to feel emotional pain. That's just the way we're wired. If we play with that long enough, we're going to get angry. If we misprocess that, we're going to get bitter. And over time, bitterness becomes hatred. Sometimes you don't even remember why you got mad at something, but you just know you hate that person or that thing or whatever, that restaurant or whatever it is. You don't even know why, but you just went through that process and see it. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you, Joseph never got on that roller coaster, but teenagers are really good at doing that, especially in this culture, because they all have unrealistic expectations. They've been programmed, and the more you let them go to cyberspace and get exposed to all kinds of garbage, it's only going to get worse. I'm not saying totally unplugged, but I'm saying there's nothing in the first ten amendments that says they have to have their own phone when they're in second grade. You know, I think it's a big mistake. But, uh, you know, by the time they're 22, maybe. But uh, before that, no. Uh, unfulfilled expectations, and they might be realistic. Sometimes you have realistic expectations about your spouse, about your pastor, about your boss, about whatever, X, Y, and Z. And if they're not met, that's, that is a problem, and you're going to feel emotional pain, and there are ways you deal with that. But let's say your, your uh, expectations are non-realistic, totally selfish, and totally unbiblical. When they're not met, you're still going to feel pain. You're going to feel real pain. And I hate to see people in pain. And I've had to deal with a lot of people that I know their expectations are totally unbiblical and unrealistic, but I try to get all the pus out of their pain emotionally, and then we got to deal with the problem. The problem isn't their spouse or their pastor or their youth minister. It's unrealistic expectations, unbiblical expectations. But uh, anger, I think, is the key area there. And don't tell me you've never been on that on that roller coaster because lying's a sin too, you know? We've all kind of done that, and that's kind of part of our... Sin nature, I think, makes us think we're the center of the universe. But anger, I think, is the key uh, area because you can't avoid emotional pain. You can't a- avoid being disappointed in this world. We're built for something much bigger and better than this, and we're going to get there through the grace of God. But you can either blow up, you can clam up, or you can wise up. And typically, I say, wise up, go back to your expectations, see what that is, and deal with it from that process. But Joseph never gets bogged down in this spectrum. How come? Because Joseph believes in the providence of God. Joseph believes in a practical um, dynamic called the providence or the sovereignty of God. Look at chapter 45, verse 5. Now, as he reveals himself to his brothers years later, he says in 45, verse 5, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here to preserve lots of lives, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, including his families. And then the ultimate statement, he says that several times, but the ultimate one, and I remember Kyleen the first week, several of you didn't think I had read the end of this story before, <laughs> but I have. Uh, but yeah, we all love this. Genesis 50, verse 20. Then after dad dies, years after that, the brothers say, well, now he's just saying that he was okay with us 
because we sold him into slavery because dad was still there. If dad's gone, now he's going to really drop the hammer on us. And they're kind of looking at him crosswise, waiting. Uh, and uh, he says, again, he believes in the sovereignty of God. He believes in the providence of God. Um, 50-20, as for you, that's all y'all. He's looking at all his brothers except for Benjamin. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. God was in this. He used it. Uh, you were culpable, but I'm not in the place of God. So, look, Joseph never gets bogged down in that spectrum. We don't have to either, and your life will be so much easier if you forget uh, the idea you're the center of the universe. All your expectations must be worshipped by your husband, your pastor, your best friend, your neighbor, because a lot of them are just selfish, and some of them just are unrealistic. You know, we only have 168 hours a week to make sure you're happy, and it's not a possible thing for us to do all the time. Okay, let's go back. So Joseph has interpreted the butler's dream, right? We haven't interpreted it yet, have we? Let's tell you what it means. Or let's let Joseph tell you. Verse 12. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of your dream. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, meaning get you out of prison, restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to the former custom, just like the good old days, right? So what does that mean? Guess what? The butler is a short timer. He's only got three more days in prison. That's always the good news, right? Verse 14. Now watch this. He says, so in three days from now, you're going back to work, buddy, and you're going to be in the good graces of the Pharaoh. Then he says, only keep me in mind, you know, because I'm still in prison when you get out, and I don't deserve to be here either. And when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this jailhouse. For I was, in fact, kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. He's thinking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being promised that land tract. And he's in Egypt. He's totally bought in to the Abrahamic covenant that God is going to give them that land tract. They're going to be a great nation, and the Messiah is going to come through them. He's totally plugged in. He's not ignorant. You can't be ignorant and trust in the providence of God. You've got to have some basic biblical truth in your head and your heart. But I was, in fact, kidnapped from the land of Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing that they should put me into this dungeon. Now, let me ask you a question. If you believe in the providence of God... Just sit home and wait for the paycheck to come in, right? Because God's sovereign, gonna happen, right? All the plans gonna happen. Do you trust and try? Of course. Do you trust and, do you trust the system and go to practice? Yeah. And then you got a chance in sports, you know. But in the Christian life, you trust and try. He totally believes in the problems of God. It's all gonna work out according to God's will. But he says, hey, when you go back, Put in a good word for me with Pharaoh, okay? That's called obstruction of justice nowadays, but it's really not, okay? Inside joke. Joseph interprets the baker's dream. We just saw the butler. Let's look at the baker. And I bet the baker's thinking, boy, he got good news. I bet I'm going to get good news too, right? Uh Uh-uh. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had interpreted the butler's dream favorably, said to Joseph, listen to mine. Mine's even better than his. I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. Now that's the problem. That simple carbohydrates is going to turn, is going to raise your, you know, glucose level. It's bad, you know, right? You know that. And in the top basket, there are uh, some of all sorts of baked food. That's probably healthier. That's probably the uh, whole wheat stuff. You know what? I'm, I'm so old. I'm using, I'm eating my hot dogs with whole wheat hot dog buns, hoping it's going to cancel out the nitrites and all the poisons in the hot dog. So that's how messed up I am, man. Um, just so you'll know. Yeah, true. Uh, it was a tough adjustment, you know. I mean, but I'm mentally tough. It does it didn't hurt me a bit. Um, all sorts of baked food for the Pharaoh. Baked food, not fried. Right? Uh, that's the generic for cooked, not baked, just so you'll know in the original. That's why you learn these things. And the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. <laughs> oh, that can't be good. You can't, hey, Carlos, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair, right? That's a quote I heard. Um, what does that mean? What do you think the butler is hoping it means? Well, Joseph answered and said, this is my interpretation, the three baskets are three days. Okay, so far so good. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh off you. Now, I think he said that reluctantly, but you have to say it, okay? Uh, there are some things I have to preach from Scripture. I'm not crazy about myself. I didn't vote on it. You know, I like to say, I didn't write this. I'm just going to tell you what it means. 
But that's our job. You know, you got to take the bitter with the sweet, the, the difficult with the easy. If you teach at a second grade level, I'd be glad to teach at a second grade level if all your temptations were second grade level, but they're not going to be. And your second grader is not getting second grade temptations. You realize this? Back in the old days, I was in a lot of fights and only won one I remember, so I know I only won one in Opelika, Florida, uh, and then uh, some other places in Birmingham, Alabama. But uh, in the old days, the good thing about bullies in uh, elementary school and, and middle school was they can't get you on the weekends. You know, you're at home. The problem with this you know what, what group is most cyber-bullied? You know what demographic is most cyber-bullied? Middle school kids. And you're tempted to check all your your Instagram and your texts and stuff, and they say nasty, horrible, obscene, ridiculous, malicious stuff about each other, and it's a bad, bad thing. So we're going to preach the second grade level to that culture? No wonder they don't take us seriously. Yeah, but the first couple of times we don't like it. You don't like baked chicken the first... Listen, you don't like whole wheat hot dog buns the first couple of months you're eating them, baby. But you know they're good for you, so you do it. Your wife forces you to, in my case. But, yeah. But, yeah. So, he just lets them know. So, two revelatory dreams from God, interpreted by his servant Joseph. Um, And, boom, one's really good news, one's really bad news. Let's look at verses 20 and 23, which is not the end of the story, but it is the end of the chapter. Joseph's interpretation in both cases proves true, but he himself is forgotten by his new friends. The butler's freed from prison and elevated. Verse 20, then it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday. And according to custom, on birthdays and stuff like that, the Pharaoh would release people from prison or kind of kind of commute their sentences. So this is very much consistent with Egyptian culture, as we found out from history. That he made a feast for all of his servants, and he lifted up the head of his chief butler and the head of his chief baker, which means got him out of prison, his servants, his close uh, associates. And he restored the chief butler to his office, and he put the cup into the Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Now, if you don't know the rest of the story, you're going to think, okay, what happened to Joseph? Because Joseph had told the butler, hey, put in a good word for me, so when's that going to happen? But you're told it doesn't happen. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You know, I, I, I love Dr. Walbert. I love Dr. Campbell. Dr. Campbell was the vice president under Dr. Walbert at Dallas Seminary for many years. And one time in chapel, this was an aside. I know he wasn't planning on doing this, but whatever he was preaching, Dr. Walbert, the president, said, was talking about faithfulness and people remembering stuff. And he said, one thing I love about Dr. Campbell is, who it was his, you know, vice president, he said, anytime I ask him to do something or check something or get back with him on something, I know I can just check it off. It's done. He never forgets. He makes it that, that important, you know. So this guy forgets, and it happens. We do it all the time. It's not malicious in most cases. It's just a bad habit to get into. It's just not a good thing. Um, so how do you react to this? Okay. By the way, we're calling this uh, chapter Genesis, Genesis 48. One label we could put on this, Robbie, is... Dreams come true after you talk to Joseph. I mean, they did come true, right? Uh, so what are you going to do with this? I mean, the chief butler forgets. Listen, let me tell you something. You don't know this, Jack. You don't know this. He knows everything else. People are ingrates. They will break your heart, man. Uh, you do a hundred things right, nobody remembers. You do one thing wrong, nobody. It's just the way people are. So what's our reaction as Christians? Love them anyway. Forgive them anyway. Be gracious to them anyway. Um, sometimes they might respond to that. It actually works. It's nice. If they don't, it doesn't matter. We're, we're not doing it because we're not being nice to them because we might get something back. We're doing it. We love because we have been loved. We forgive because we have been forgiven. That doesn't mean you can't put consequences and penalties on certain things, but you don't hold a personal grudge all the time every time somebody doesn't meet your expectations, especially when it's selfish, unrealistic, unbiblical. If we did that all the time, we'd, we'd be wrong. You serve them. Why do you serve? What did, what did our leaders say? Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And is he our example? Or is the Buddha our example? Right? Uh, nothing else will keep you going unless you're doing the right thing for the right reason. So this chapter is really cool. I love it. It's not the end of the story. And in fact, Robbie, look at the next verse. Now the chapter divisions in your Bible uh, came about by a guy named Stephen Langston in about 1300 A.D., 
So, you know, they're helpful to help us find stuff, but occasionally they break uh, the flow. So the chief butler uh, didn't remember Joseph, forgot him. Next, in that little space, I was telling Sydney, that little space between the end of chapter 40 and the beginning of chapter 41 is a two-year-long space. Now, it happened at the end of two full years after that, something happens that triggers the butler's memory. He said, oh, I know a guy in prison who can help you, the Pharaoh. But that's all the perfect timing. So all this all works out. God sees how it all fits together. So, uh, notice, people may forget you, and they probably will, but God doesn't, can't, and won't. And, uh, you know, I love Jesus says, this is will of my Father. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have everlasting life, and my, I myself will raise him up in the last day, unless I forget. He ain't going to forget. Uh, like I say, he doesn't, can't, and won't forget, Okay. So you've got to put your uh, your trust in the Lord, not just people, because they will, they're, they're frail. You know, if they're not trying to, they'll let you down from time to time. But also, I think I want to end, end with this one as a teacher of the word. Those who interpret God's revelation, not so much dreams, I think that's a rel- relatively rare occurrence for revelatory dreams to happen. And very few people in the Bible are given that ministry. Uh, but fa- pastors, youth ministers, missionaries, etc. We need to preach the whole counsel of God. We've got to give you the good with the bad, uh, the the sweet with the bitter. I didn't vote on the doctrine of hell, but I'm not going to deny it. You know, it's there, right? It actually makes sense if you think about it deeply theologically, but it's not the... the Genesis, uh, Revelation 20, about the lake of fire, the second part of that chapter, that's not the first thing I teach kindergartners. That's just me, okay? I think you have to You kind of use some common sense there. But for us to deny that, and a lot of evangelicals are saying nobody likes that. They've done the Gallup polling. Let's just not teach it or just not mention it or just say it's soul sleep or something. You can't do that. I mean, Joseph didn't say, well, uh, okay, uh, Baker, you know what? Uh, in three days, Pharaoh's going to have a party, and it's going to evolve a tree. And you're going to, you know, and, and uh, you're going to be surprised, you know. <laughs> he has to tell him the bad news, Right. Sometimes I look at some of you guys, you look like I shot your dog when I'm explaining what some of these verses mean, you know. And I'm not writing it. I'm just telling you what it means, and I'm happy to do it, actually. But, uh, um, but I've stepped on my toes a lot more than I step on yours, because i got to deal with this all week as I anticipate how to do it. So as we read and interpret God's written revelation when we're in the Word ourselves or under James or under Brad or listening to Chuck Swindoll on the radio or whoever you listen to, John MacArthur, we must not only embrace the easy slash sweet portions. And this is why I think it's important that people from the pulpit basically take big chunks of scripture like the Joseph story or books primarily is what they teach because otherwise you can cherry pick just simple little things that are going to be uncontroversial. And all the important stuff has always been controversial and now in our culture it's becoming hyper-controversial. Romans 1 will soon become illegal to preach. Uh, goodness, I mean, John 14, 6 is fighting words in our culture. What did Jesus say there? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God, the Father, but through me. You're going to make any friends in this culture saying that? So we're going to avoid it? We're going to water it down? We're going to hide it? We're going to have social events and, you know, rock concerts to get people. Maybe they like us. They'll like Jesus. And we'll tell them who he really is, you know, a few years down the road if they can handle it. Uh, that's just not being honest. So uh, don't use your Bible like a collection of individually wrapped spiritual fortune cookies. You're going to have to read at least paragraphs at a minimum, okay? Preferably big sections like Joseph is a big part of Genesis or whole books to really get the whole counsel. And I think that's really, uh, when you do that, the Bible kind of preaches itself, Okay. Uh, I'll finish here. I want to, wanted to comment about something in, uh, that happened last Sunday. Uh, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. When people like it, when they don't, when they come, when they don't come, when they care, when they don't care, when they got the reasons not to come, when they come because it's important, even when they've got other things they could be doing. Reprove. That means tell them when they're wrong. Rebuke. Tell them they can do better. Exhort. Encourage them as they try with patience and instruction. I know why I was in dental school for two years. I actually pulled some teeth in dental school, and sometimes teaching the word is like pulling teeth, you know? Sometimes teaching at colleges like that. Uh, but watch. The time will come, and it is here when they, just the, the general population, and sometimes too many Christians, will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers, and of course, their desires turn away 
their ears from the truth, turn aside the myth. On Easter Sunday, you probably read about it. Let's go to that one, this one first. Um, in Sri Lanka, that little island at the tip of, off the tip of in, uh, India, it used to be called Ceylon. Now it's called Sri Lanka. Um, there were three different churches bombed, two Roman Catholic and one evangelical church on that island, hundreds of people killed. And several of our elites who, in the, in the recent New Zealand mosque bombing, one of them said, my heart breaks for the worldwide Muslim community because of this mosque bombing. I didn't like it either. I felt much the same way. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's terrible. I didn't like it. But this person said, my heart breaks for the worldwide Muslim community. Okay? That was her opinion of that. Okay, Now we have Muslim terrorists killing Christians. And she and another very famous elite said, this is a horrible thing that Easter worshipers should be attacked. We don't worship Easter. I'm sorry, okay? We worship a risen Jesus, but they don't want to use the word Christian because Christians are the problem, okay? And if you're going to get third grade teaching on little, nice little Bible stories, you can't understand the faith and you sure aren't going to be able to live it out in middle school, much less in a college classroom or anywhere else in your assistant living center. So this is why this is so important. And a lot of what we learn in the Joseph story will not ever be taught by people like Joel Olstein, but he's got a church with 50,000 people in it. Uh, it's nice, big deal. You know, some of us would say that's tragic, but uh, <laughs> that's not our job, okay? Nor yours, okay? I feel better now. I don't need to go to Christian counselors. I get it all out. <laughs> Father, uh, help us to see just how relevant and how powerful you know, this this uh, narrative is, and it's not a story in the sense they made it up. It's a, it's a true story. But this is incredible. This guy doesn't have the New Testament even, but he's living out First Peter because that truth that we're not supposed to live by sight or by cultural norms or by just what we can see. We're supposed to live by faith in the God who created the universe, who sovereignly controls everything. And when we can't, uh, trace your hand. Help us to trust your heart. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.